So our scripture passage this morning is from 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, the first uh, eight verses. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version translation, and you can see the text upon the screen. Follow along with me. These are the words of the Apostle Paul, of course, to his younger mentoree, disciple, uh, Timothy. At the same time, they are the very words of the living God. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itchy ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's pray again. Our God and Father, we thank you for the blessing, the gift, uh, the instruction, the word from you, that you are a God who is infinitely above us in every way, but you are not a God who is silent. You have not left us without both your witness and creation and your own God-breathed word in the scriptures. For that we are grateful, for that we are thankful. And so we would ask that we would listen to the word this morning, but more than just listening even as we're exhorted by James, that we would be doers of the word and not hearers only. We pray that your word would be to us a very powerful means of grace to change us, to transform us, to enable us to be who you want us to be, as Jesus taught us, faithful disciples who will be salt and light to this world. We pray these things would be so. In Christ's name, amen. As we come to this section uh, of 2 Timothy, we recognize that this is the second of two letters that the apostle has written to his young uh, child in the faith, uh, Timothy, who at this point, by the way, is no longer really that young, uh, well into his 30s, possibly 40 years of age, because it's quite likely that this was written around A.D. 70, excuse me, A.D. 67. That is one of the dates given for when the apostle Paul was crucif crucified, executed, Peter was crucified upside down. The apostle, because he was a Roman citizen, could not be crucified, but he was executed, meaning he was beheaded. Uh, under, most likely, the persecution that came through the time of Nero, Caesar Nero. So what consumes the apostle Paul all the way through this letter is the sense of his own mortality in, in terms of coming to death. He knows that he's not going to be Delivered, He speaks in the last chapter that his departure is soon, and yet he's still asking for Timothy to come to be with him. 
But what we find in the first verse and what we find in the eighth verse is a kind of bracketing of this section. Because in the first verse, the apostle is going to be talking about that day, that day of Christ's second coming, that day in which all believers will appear before him. And in the eighth verse, he speaks about the second coming of Christ as well. He brackets what he says, this last most significant doctrinal teaching in the book of 2 Timothy, with the future glory that the apostle can so clearly see. He begins with the future glory in verse 1. He ends with the future glory in verse 8. And everything in between uh, actually pertains to that future glory. Now, this is not a new thing that the Apostle is saying. In fact, we find that in 2 Timothy, many of the themes of 1 Timothy are repeated. We find in 2 Timothy that some of the themes of 2 Timothy are repeated again. And so what the Apostle has to say here is something he already said in chapter 2 from verses 9 through 19 in terms of a grand theme. In fact, at that point, as I was preaching on that, I essentially said this, The certainty of death's outcome for Christians should galvanize our efforts to live for nothing less than the glory of Christ. Uh, The certainty of what's going to happen with us after we die, the certainty of that, not a hope, not a vain hope, uh, not a maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't, but the very certainty of that, is what should galvanize us as Christians to live our lives now faithfully. Now, we see that in chapter 2, beginning at verse 9, but we also see that here in chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. The certainty of the outcome galvanizing how we live now. But with respect to this passage today, I'll say it this way. When we as believers focus properly on our future glory then we're moved in our present and sacred calling. Moved to follow, moved to pursue, moved to live out our sacred calling. So, Paul's own life example demonstrates this for us. Uh, We see the Apostle Paul contemplating what's going to take place. And in contemplating what's going to take place, he then exhorts Timothy how to live. Now, this is not a new kind of thing. Uh, in the Apostle Paul's writings. But I want us to think about this in terms of what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that to live the Christian life, you have to focus on that future glory, which means not on earthly glory and not on earthly brokenness. Now, people who focus on earthly glory are essentially the kind of people who think, We're just going to get everything we can out of this life because it's the only life there is. People who focus on the brokenness of this life are those who say, surely there's something we can do, some utopian kind of dream, some utopian kind of program by which we can fix this earthly brokenness. We, human beings, fixing this earthly brokenness, that's what we need to be doing. Sometimes Christians get pulled into that the idea that somehow we can fix the earthly brokenness that exists. The Apostle Paul says we need to be fixed on the future glory. Now, because of that, because that's always been for 2,000 years the primary focus, when we came to the 19th century, Karl Marx said, see, 
Here's the big problem with the world, Christianity. What does Christianity do? It and all religions are an opiate for the people. You're going to be so concerned about what's going on uh, in heaven that you're going to be no earthly good. And that's often been said, right? Uh, So heavenly-minded, you are no earthly good. Is that really what the Apostle Paul was teaching? No. But listen how Paul has said earlier to the church at Colossae, no differently than what he's saying now. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, this is what the Apostle says. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The only way you can be of any earthly good is if you have your heart and mind properly focused on future glory. That's what the apostle is saying. When the Christian is absolutely certain as to what's going to happen after death for him, the benefits of all that Christ has done for him, that is when the Christian is most strongly galvanized for the greatest amount of earthly good. The problems of the world cannot motivate you sufficiently to be earthly, to be helpful in an earthly way. The brokenness of the world is not your agenda in terms of being helpful and useful in this world. No. It's the agenda of God's own kingdom, the agenda of salvation, the agenda of redemption. It's the knowledge of what God does for you in Christ that must always motivate you. But if it does properly motivate you, then the New Testament says you will be strongly motivated to be salt of the earth, to be light of the world, to do good to all men, especially those of the household of the faith, and you will seek constantly to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Only if you have sufficient motivation will you ever do what God has called you to do. And the only sufficient motivation is the glory of God in the coming of Christ again into this world. Now, in terms of these verses between 1 and 8, as we look at it, I've organized it around four kinds of thoughts and around the verb to live. The operative idea here is live. So first of all, looking at verse 1, it's going to be live quorum deo. I'll explain what that means in a moment. And then secondly, you've got to live service ready. And then thirdly, you've got to live counterculturally. And then fourthly, live ministerially. Those four ideas capturing what Paul has to say here about being motivated to live the sacred life as a Christian because you've got your attention properly fixed upon future glory. Future glory, your present calling, living coram deo, living service ready, living counterculturally, and living ministerially. Now, with respect to verse 1 and the first idea, to live coram deo. It's a Latin phrase. 
You may, it may not be familiar to you. But if you are familiar with the ministry of the late Dr. R.C. Sproul, you know that this was one of his mottos of his great and extensive uh, ministry. Quorum Deo is a Latin phrase that means literally in the face of God or in the presence of God. In theological ideas, the idea to live in the presence of God came to mean this, to live under the authority of and to live in recognition of the honor and glory of God, to live in God's presence such that you are seeking and searching and always attempting to do what brings God glory. That's what it means to live Coram Deo. And so what we have here in verse 1 is Paul charging Timothy uh, to once again recognize the very presence of God and to recognize the presence of Christ who is the judge of the living and the dead, the Christ who's coming again, the Christ who's coming to bring his kingdom. When you consider that, the presence of God and the presence of Christ, and Christ in all of his future glory, you're talking about living in such a way that you understand that your life belongs to Christ. Your life belongs to Jesus. Your life is his, and the very purpose of your life then is to live for him not for earthly glory and not for earthly brokenness, but to live for the glory of Christ because only if your mind and heart is set on Christ and the things above are you ever going to be earthly good. You will never have sufficient motivation to live life fully, to live life in every way that God wants you to live your life unless you have your heart anchored where it needs to be anchored. To live in the presence of the living God every moment, every day. To live in such a way that you understand that the big things and the little things to be lived for the glory of God. Uh, to think about the fact that Paul the Apostle brought it all down to the very practical level when he said, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all and everything for the glory of God. The glory of God ultimately is the only sufficient reason for you to do anything at all, and especially anything good. Your neighbor is someone you cannot love easily, often. But if the glory of God is what you're anchored into, then for the sake of the glory of God, you will love your neighbor. Preferring others, doing all the kinds of things that the second greatest commandment would call us to do. How can we possibly motivate it to live that way if we don't have our hearts anchored to the glory of God and especially that future glory that God will bring into this world? When I think about what Paul says here, when he describes that future glory of Christ, Christ who is the judge of the living and the dead, Christ who is coming again to this world, Christ who will bring his kingdom when he comes in all of his glory, recognize how closely the apostle was tutored and trained by Jesus. Because there is a very precise parallel between what Paul says here in these verses and in these thoughts. And that parable that, the apostle, that Jesus told in Matthew 25. Listen to these words. 
Matthew 25, 31, 32. It's about the day of final judgment. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. That's the future glory of Christ. That's Jesus coming again in all of his glory, sitting upon his throne to be the judge of the living and the dead. So that's Paul's exhortation to Timothy. Because of this future glory of Christ, because of the presence of God, that is the motivation for you to live your sacred life and calling. It's true for all of us. It applies to all of us, not just to the apostle. Now, the second thing he says in verse 2 is to live service-ready. Readiness is really the key idea that we find in verse 2. Paul is exhorting Timothy to a constant readiness to serve with the main gift and the calling that God has given to him as a shepherd and teacher. Timothy, therefore, has to be ready to preach the word because that's his main calling. His main calling is the ministry of the word of God, and so he's being exhorted to be ready to preach that word, to do so in season and out of season. Now, we probably have heard that term, that phrase, in season and out of season, so often in our lives as Christians. But did you recognize, or have you recognized, that it is a figure of speech? And there's a particular technical term for it as a figure of speech. It's called a merism. M-E-R-I-S-M, merism. The very first verse of the Bible has a merism. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Psalm 103, verse 12, you have a merism. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. A merism is a figure of speech that takes polar opposites to convey the concept of totality. The, the concept of everything. In the beginning, God created everything. And as far as the east is from the west, that infinite distance and all the distance between the east and the west, that huge distance so far has God removed your transgressions from you. Now, here we have a merism that gives the opposites, in season, out of season. It's a way of saying to, the, to Timothy from the Apostle Paul, Timothy... Your readiness to preach must be constant. It must be at all times. You must be always ready to do this. And that's, that's a huge responsibility that's incumbent upon a, upon a shepherd, upon a teacher, upon a, someone who's called to the Word of God. To be ready at all times. But do you think it's any different for you as a Christian? Do you think that of, of what God has given to you in terms of living the Christian life, that you can live the Christian life when it's convenient for you to do so? Think about this for a moment. Suppose we were to not apply the concept of in-season and out-of-season to our lives as Christians. Uh, we might say something like this, or we might reread the book of Philippians this way, Philippians chapter 2. We might say, well, Paul said to the Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition or 
vain conceit when it's convenient. Or in humility, count others more significant than yourselves when it's convenient. Uh, let each of you look out for not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others when it's convenient. Then, if that were true, we would never have this mind in ourselves that was also in Christ Jesus, that mind in Christ which made him a servant and a slave for all of us, obedient to the point of death, even death upon the cross, in which he gave his life as a ransom for many. What the Apostle Paul is saying is that your Christian life isn't on again, off again, on again, off again, on again, off again. No. Your calling as a Christian is 24-7. Your calling as a Christian is something that you cannot take a vacation from. Your calling as a Christian is one in which you must be living service ready at all times. At all times. For all things and all ways. At all times. Now, with, the, with respect to Timothy, how is he supposed to do this? You know, the ministry of the word. Uh, it's a very serious business. He's told that you've got to be uh, reproving and rebuking and exhorting as you preach and teach the word. And, and I want us to think about that. Uh, don't we want pastors who are up in front of us giving us that encouraging word, telling us how great you are, uh, speaking to you and saying, just try again, you can do it? There's no trace in the New Testament in which the concept of God loving us is so deep and the concept of our need to love one another is so deep, there's no trace in which that conception of love ever flatters people in terms of what they're not. You have no natural ability to be who God wants you to be. None. You can't get to where God wants you to be by your own efforts. Cheerleaders will never get you there. Receiving props will never get you there. A pat on the back will never get you there. Getting a trophy for just showing up will never get you there. The Word of God has to penetrate sharply into your hearts and into your lives in such a way that you are being exhorted to be who God wants you to be. You're being even rebuked for not being what God wants you to be. You're being reproved uh, because your life isn't where it's supposed to be. We all need this the shepherd as well as the sheep, the one who pastors as well as the people. We all need the word of God spoken to us in such a way that we understand that we need the grace of Christ more than we need anything else. It's interesting over my years of being a pastor, and those years are coming to an end. I mean, two weeks The one thing that I have never seen in all those years of being a pastor are people growing strong in Christ by getting lots of pats on the back. I have seen people growing strong in Christ 
who have suffered major setbacks financially, who've suffered deeply because of illnesses, who have lost friendships and people to just the brokenness of life. I have seen people become deep Christians because they have actually had to rely more deeply upon the grace of God. And the only solace they could find was in the Word of God and in the presence of Christ and calling upon God to help them in every way. And that is why what Paul says to Timothy takes such a serious tone. Because the matter of our growing as Christians is a serious matter. And yet I, don't, I want to say this. As serious as, as it is, it's God's work, God's ministry that's serious. Uh, I always like to say to students and others, take God seriously, but don't take yourself too seriously. Right? If we cannot laugh at our own foibles and weaknesses, if we cannot be willing to say, in all humility, <laughs> I'm not all that. Right? People want to say, I'm all that. No, no, no. Well, they don't say it about me. They probably say it about some of you. Hey, you're all that. But that's the point is, don't take yourself seriously, but take everything about God seriously. And especially take his grace seriously and believe it. Believe that when Christ died for you, this was the Father's love for you. The deepest kind of love. The Father loves you. And it's because he loves you. You're motivated to live service ready. Now, what Paul says in going on into verse 3 and 4 has to do with, uh, in a sense, why Timothy's being exhorted so strongly. And it's because Paul says to Timothy, uh, you, you live in a world that isn't going to really want to hear your message. So Timothy's been ex- and exhorted to live counterculturally. How encouragement, what kind of encouragement is it to a pastor who is told, um, start preaching, and in a short time, people aren't going to want to hear it. Uh, keep preaching, because you know just down the road, here's what you're going to see. Uh, people are going to want uh, teachers who are going to tickle their ears, and they're not going to want the truth because they're not going to endure the truth. They're going to go around seeking someone else other than you to be their teachers who will satisfy their passions. What kind of encouragement was that to Timothy? It wasn't designed to be encouragement. Timothy wasn't to be motivated by that kind of an encouragement. Hey, go do the work. God's blessed. You have a big church, mega church soon, plant many churches, whatever, and you can soon have a Learjet that you can fly anywhere you want to throughout the world and do your wonderful ministry. No. Paul's word to Timothy is live 
counterculturally. Because the culture is never going to become the friend of the gospel. And the more faithfully you preach, at some point, the greater the pushback becomes. It's interesting that what the apostle says here is very clearly appointed to the church. Because when he talks about what's going on, he says people are going to, in essence, arise up who aren't going to want to hear the truth, who aren't going to endure the truth. And clearly, uh, Paul is saying, Timothy, the, the audience that is the people of God, there's going to come a point at which some within that audience are going to start shutting their ears to what you are saying. A time will come, he says, when people will not endure sound teaching. Now, when you study what Paul is saying to Timothy and you look at the history of the church, you know that that is an episodic kind of thing. There are seasons in which people do hear the word of God, gladly hear the word of God, respond to the word of God. There have been many revivals in terms of the preaching of the word of God in church history. There's been the church on its uh, up, uh, rising up, becoming stronger, becoming just a, a larger part of salt and light to the world. And then the church also has faced times of decline, deep decline. And Paul is saying to Timothy, um, even perhaps in your lifetime, there's going to come this kind of decline. People are going to gravitate to teachers who are going to pander to their desires, turn away the truth and replace that with myths. So in Timothy's own lifetime, the main enemy was the rise of Gnosticism. Now let me explain what Gnosticism happens to be. Gnosticism was a movement that very quickly adopted Jesus and adopted Christian terminology to describe what they were doing. It shows up in the latter part of the first century, begins to be very prevalent within the second century and into the third century. And the church had to deal with Gnosticism. Uh, but one of the real, really deep problems in Gnosticism was it was a deeply pagan understanding of the world, a deeply pagan understanding of human beings, a deeply pagan understanding of life, especially in its soul-body duality. Gnosticism is chiefly characterized by the idea that only spirituality and the spirit and the soul matter which means the physical world and the physical body don't matter. In fact, the, the idea was that the physical body was something that was like a prison holding the soul captive. And therefore, the most important thing about the soul was that it needed to somehow escape the body. The body had no ultimate authority over the soul. The soul could escape the body. But even while the soul was living in the body, it was the soul that was the true essence of identity and not the body. Your inner nature, therefore, must transcend your body and your real identity is spiritual or psychological rather than physical. Now, you may be wondering, why are you going into this? 
modern Gnosticism has infiltrated the evangelical church. Which is to say, we have a lot of people within the church today who are applying these ancient Gnostic ideas to human identity. There are evangelicals who are agreeing that someone who is female could actually be living in a man's body. Or that there would be a male who is actually living in a female's body. That's the whole crisis today of gender identity politics. The idea that the physical body has no authority with respect to gender. It's what someone feels like inside. Now, the arising of this idea in Western culture um, began during the Enlightenment, the latter part of the Enlightenment, during the Romantic time. Uh, it has all sorts of influences in terms of Freud and others, but the identification of it is nothing other than pagan Gnosticism. And it's a rejection of the idea that God's created order has any authority at all. The Apostle is talking about a concern that Timothy was going to face. And if we're not wise enough to see the repetition of these same ideas in a slightly different form in our day, we're going to wonder what in the world is going on, and it's going to be terribly confusing. But it is not confusing at all. It's not a new thing. It's the kind of concern that the apostle had in speaking to Timothy and which the early church had to address. Now, that which was Paul's concern is a huge concern in our day because we have many who have been leaders in the evangelical world totally endorsing the kinds of things which our government has done, uh, promoting transgenderism, uh, promoting marriage having a very wide definition, promoting these kinds of things. What does Paul say to Timothy? You see these things coming? You have to live counterculturally. Even though your preaching is going to be less and less respected because more and more people are going to want to adopt these kinds of ideas, Timothy, you can't stop. You have to keep being a voice for the truth. You must keep preaching what you've been called to preach. Live counter-culturally. That applies to all of us. If the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth, this applies to all of us. We all need to live counter-culturally. We all need to live in such a way that we understand what does the Word of God have to say about the issues of the day and then be committed to keep living the way God has called us to live. It doesn't mean we have to be on Facebook posting everything about these kinds of things and showing how much we disagree with them. Nope. I wouldn't think social media is a very good vehicle for teaching or communicating anything to anybody. I think, in fact, social media is probably the place where the greatest amount of untruth, mistruth, uh, misinformation is actually promulgated. But if we're wise, we'll have kind conversations with people. We'll do our best to share the truth. And we'll pray for those who don't understand. Because Paul said to Timothy in chapter 2, verse 24, the Lord's teacher 
which really means all of us who are the Lord's, must be patient with those who are in error, gently correcting those who are wrong, if God might grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they might escape the snare of the devil who's held him captive to do their will, to do his will. Patience, kindness, speaking the truth, and love. That's what God has called us to. To live counterculturally never means to live in a way that we try to dominate others. To live counterculturally means living in terms of love, caring for others, especially caring for their brokenness. Now, lastly, we come down to verses 5 to 7. And here the idea is to live ministerially. Live the life that you've been called to, even in these very, very difficult times. Uh, The end of verse 5, Paul says to Timothy that it's Timothy's responsibility to fulfill his ministry. And, And that word fulfill really speaks to bringing things to completion. It really speaks to the idea of getting the job done. So in light of all the difficulties, in light of the present darkness of this evil age, Timothy, take your job seriously, endure the hard things that are certain to come, keep your witness to the gospel, get the job done. Why? So, Timothy, you can finish well. Because that's really the trajectory of the apostles' thoughts, to finish well. How to finish well? Well, then, verses 6 and 7 The apostle describes his own life, the biographical perspective. This is how you finish well. The person we should seek to imitate is the apostle Paul here. Because Paul says he has fought the good fight. He has finished the race. He has kept the faith. Paul knows that he's going to finish well. And that also is what you and I as Christians ought to seek. That's the end game for which the apostle lived. To finish well so that in the presence of Christ, he would receive the crown of righteousness that was going to be given to him. And then he says, and to all those who have loved our Lord's appearing. The idea of a crown comes not from the concept of ruling, but for the concept of being awarded in like the Olympic Games, the athletic games. And the crown in that sense was the crown of victory. The crown was a symbol that symbolized the victory. And so the Apostle Paul says here, there waits for me a crown of righteousness. That is to say, this crown of righteousness simply means the righteousness that God intends to fully work in the life of every believer when Christ returns. So let me close with this passage from the book of Revelation. Chapter 7, verses 14 and 17. There before the throne of God, before the Lamb, we read these words. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him night and day in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, The sun shall not strike them, nor the scorching heat. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne, who is in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear away from their eyes. Paul has that idea. 
in terms of what lies ahead. Paul recognizes fully the future glory that belongs to every Christian in terms of what is to come. And because of being fixed on that future glory, we as believers are moved to faithfulness in terms of our present and sacred calling. Let's pray. Almighty God, um, we would ask uh, that you would fill us with a great sense of destiny, a great sense of purpose, that we would understand that for us who belong to Christ, uh, there is an outcome of our lives. There is a reason for why we would live and serve Jesus. It is because ultimately this brings you glory. But it's a glory that when the final day comes, you will share it with us. And our brokenness will be healed in every way. Every tear will be wiped away. Death will be no more. And we shall have not just the imputed righteousness of Christ, but we shall be those whose souls have been made perfect in the full righteousness of Christ, clothed in robes dipped in the blood, able to say, Lord, you have made us full of yourself. And we look like Christ, and it is to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.